Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real broadcast. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is the po- podcast where we talk about elements of the Scriptures that have made them become more real to us, because we believe we can draw more power out of the Scriptures when they're real to us, and we need that power in our lives so desperately these days. Today, this is a little short cast. We're going to talk about um, Samuel. I've already spent some time talking about that with my wife as a guest. Uh, there are just a couple of elements that uh, we're going to touch on in this short cast, including kind of the authorship of the book and, and what that tells us about uh, the authorship of the Bible in general. Uh, and it's worth noting that I'm releasing this uh, episode and uh, the one with my wife first, and then we'll do Ruth as a, a follow-up episode. We're going to have a longer one on Ruth. I think that the Come Follow Me reading uh, says to read Ruth first and then Samuel. That makes sense because the story of Ruth takes place during the period of Judges. But um, on Sunday, which is when I usually release these podcasts, I'm going to actually be doing uh, a lecture on Ruth and we're going to make that a joint uh, broadcast with um, The Scriptures Are Real. And so uh, we're just going to leave that uh, to be done Sunday night. And as soon as I can get it edited, then I'll get it posted. And so we'll have some Ruth material for you soon. Uh, But today we're doing Samuel. So there are a number of things that I want to talk about with Samuel, um, including, as I said, something about uh, the authorship of Samuel and and, uh, uh, some of that background. So um, the, the Talmud claims that Samuel is the author of the book of Samuel. Uh, that seems unlikely to me since he dies uh, partway through the book, and so he may have had um, some hand in it. My guess is that this is something like what we have in the, the Book of Mormon, uh, where Samuel probably wrote some things, and then some what we might call a redactor is the technical term we give uh, to it, an abridger. Uh, or a group of abridgers uh, uses those records and puts them together. So that's that's worth talking about, kind of the larger story of what's going on with the scriptures in general. Um, we often, as scholars, will often talk about what is known as the Deuteronomistic history. Uh, and that seems to run, you can uh, argue this a couple of ways, either Deuteronomy through the end of Second Kings, um, uh, not with Ruth included in there, Ruth in the Hebrew Bible is in a different place, uh, but this is um, really um, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. That seems to all have been written at, at one time. Well, actually, I, I kind of suspect that most of the way through Second Kings and then a little bit was added thereafter. Um, Deuteronomy very possibly uh, comes before that. Uh, I, I think the core of Deuteronomy came before that, but the way we have it now may have been written at this time by this group of people. So there is someone, it's either a person like Mormon, who takes all these different records and puts together a narrative with the intent to teach us some specific things, um, or it's a group of people. And I suspect it's a group of people who put this together. In fact, my guess would be in Hezekiah's day, and then again in Josiah's day, but we don't really know. Um, But I think there are a group of people who... uh, take all of these records and put them together in a way that's designed to teach a theological message, largely about the covenant and following God and, and worshiping God only and not other gods uh, and that kind of a thing. But, um, and uh, I, I think th- that's a, a powerful message that they convey very, very well. Uh, and my guess is that Deuteronomy, the way we have it now in, in it, that form was crafted by this group of people 
uh, as was Joshua and so on, and that they pulled together all sorts of records. Mormon is very transparent about what he's doing. Um, these people aren't hiding, but they're not saying, hi, this is, you know, uh, Joe Ash and uh, Ebenezer, and we're putting this together. Uh, this is uh, just a group of uh, anonymous people, but they do something very similar to what Mormon is doing. Um, the reason it's called Deuteronomistic History is because it carries those themes of Deuteronomy that I was just talking about, the message of covenant, uh, worshiping God and God only and loving God and no one else the way that you love God that we talked about, the Shema that's in Deuteronomy chapter six. If you don't um, remember that discussion or you didn't hear it, I'd recommend you go back and listen to that uh, discussion from Deuteronomy chapter six that we did on that episode of the podcast. Um, but uh, that theme of loving God and keeping his covenant and what works well for you when you do keep the covenant and what doesn't work well when you don't keep the covenant uh, really heavily influences all of these books. And it does seem like they're, they're uh, kind of put together uh, in a consistent way to do that. I think it actually also, and I'm not the first one to come up with this, but I think it influences the Book of Mormon as well. Uh, in fact, um, some of this is happening, as I said, in the days of Josiah and Lehi is a young man in those days. Uh, Josiah, we'll get to this later, but finds a, a book. Well, it's some people working on the temple on his behalf, finds a book that is probably Deuteronomy. Um, they have it read and it really influences uh, some of what is being written in his day. And I think it influences Lehi as well in a very good, positive, inspired way. Um, and thus, I think it influences Book of Mormon writers from Lehi on. Uh, in any case, we don't know who wrote this book, uh, Samuel, but I suspect it is um, this group of people. Um, let's talk about the division of the book. Uh, the Talmud just speaks of one Samuel, doesn't talk about a first and second Samuel. On um, the Masoretic notes, so the Masoretes are people who um, kind of took tra kept track of and copied the um, text of the Bible for a very long time. Our Bible, what, the, the translation we use is based off of the Masoretic text that they uh, gave us, and they had notes. Um, and in those notes, they said, well, we receive this in this way, but we think it should read that way because they weren't going to mess with the text the way they received it. They would just make comments about it. So they say that they received it as first and second Samuel, but they think it was originally just one Samuel. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Samuel is just one book. There's not a first and second Samuel. It's when we get to the Greek um, translation of it that is broken into two books, uh, and, and that may be because uh, it's longer when you write in Greek because the vowels are included and so on. Um, uh, who knows exactly why, but at some point it gets uh, divided up into first and second Samuel, but you'll do well if you just read this uh, as if there's not some big division in between those two. Uh, it's a little bit like Lord of the Rings, which was written all as one work, and then the publishers just divided into three just to make it easier. Um, uh, but you should not treat it as three different works. It's one work. Uh, same thing with Samuel. It's one work, really. All right. It's also worth thinking of Samuel. Uh, uh, he is an incredibly significant figure. He is the last judge uh, during this period of judges. And so uh, the first part of the book of Samuel is still in the period of the judges. Samuel is a judge, and he's the, the first one that really seems to be judging or, or exercising this leadership over all of Israel. And we've got uh, judicial, prophetic, and military, sometimes military leadership, all in one person. Um, and so he is that last judge of all of Israel, and an incredibly significant figure. And, and this is uh, really kind of, we, we talked in um, the last podcast about judges, uh, at them hitting a low point there, but Samuel seems to be bringing them out of it. He's getting them to a high point. 
um, because of his incredible leadership and their willingness to follow his incredible leadership. We'll see how that starts to fall apart as well. But he's that last great judge. He's also, and I, I want to make sure you understand the way I'm going to use this phrase, he's the first prophet. So I don't mean that as in that they never had any inspired prophets before this. Adam's the first prophet. Uh, in fact, we could sing a song, Adam is the front prophet, first one that we know, right? But um, he is the first prophet in a tradition that will come to be thought of as, as kind of a prophets influencing Israel in a specific way. He sets up kings, he advises kings, uh, and so on, so that even the Savior, when he talks about uh, prophets, he'll say from Samuel to Zechariah, right? So in this kind of tradition, he's the first one. He's this transition. He's going from the period of the judges to the period of kings, and he's the prophet that sets up and uh, advises the king. And so he becomes the first prophet in that sense or in that tradition that will last for quite a while. Uh, so he's a very significant and important figure. Um, so uh, what I want to spend the rest of our time is talking about the call of, of Samuel. Uh, we know Eli is being rejected um, because he's not willing to um, discipline his sons and, and likely to remove them from priestly office when they refuse to uh, conform and obey. Uh, and I mentioned that a little bit in the podcast with my wife. There was one element that I forgot to mention, uh, and that is that these, um, these sons of Samuel, um, not only are they taking different portions and so on, but uh, for a number of offerings, the fat is supposed to be offered. Now, we try and get lean meat. We don't want so much fat and so on. Well, first of all, their animals weren't as fat as a lot of our animals. But secondly, fat is what gives flavor. Uh, and they didn't have a lot of fat in their lives the way we have uh, plenty of uh, access to all sorts of uh, fatty foods. They did not have so much access. So fat was to be valued. And so part of the sacrifice was to burn the fat to God. Um, but they would take forcibly take fat from the people even, uh, and so that the people weren't able to offer a sacrifice the way they were supposed to. And if someone um, said, hey, no, you can't do that. I'm supposed to offer up this fat. Uh, they would uh, threaten them and forcibly take it from them. So uh, the sons of Eli, who are slated to be a high priest, are actually making it so that people can't do sacrifices correctly rather than helping them do it correctly, which is their job. Uh, so that's, and, and Eli uh, seems to be, uh, I mean, he talks to them about it, but he won't do more than that. And so uh, we've talked about how he seems to not be willing to go through with an Abrahamic sacrifice. So now let's talk about uh, Samuel and his call. Uh, it's, it's really an incredible thing. He's growing up uh, as a Nazarite that is, uh, so you usually don't think of Samuel with really long hair, but he probably had really long hair. Um, and he is uh, serving in the temple. Uh, and um, he uh, it ministers to Eli. He's kind of become Eli's third son, as it were. Uh, his Eli's older sons are, are uh, older, but uh, he's taking care of Samuel, and Samuel is attending to him, and so on. And we get this uh, call, verse three. So we're in chapter three, verse three, um, that uh, Samuel lays down to sleep, and then verse four, the Lord calls Samuel, and Samuel's answer: Here am I. Uh, same thing that Abraham had said when God called for him. Uh, we know from other scriptures, that's what Christ says when God asks who will save these people, right? Hinnene, uh, I'm having a hard time with this. Hinnene is uh, how you say it in Hebrew, which is, literally means behold me, right? Here I am. Uh, but he thinks that it's Eli, so he runs into Eli, and Eli says, it's not me, go to sleep, and he goes to sleep again, and the Lord calls him again, and he runs into Eli, and he says, I'm not calling you. 
and then uh, Samuel, uh, he doesn't understand that it's God yet. This is really his first experience with God. Uh, and he's learning about this. So then he calls him a third time and he goes into Eli. And Eli, this is really important in verse eight. Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore, Eli said unto Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he called thee that thou shalt say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. That is a phrase. I think that there are some scriptures that are just worth memorizing so well that they become part of who you are, that they sink down in your heart. And that phrase is, is worth memorizing. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Or you can do it the way that Samuel, it's recorded that Samuel says, and in, in the next verse, the Lord came and stood and called at other times, and Samuel, Samuel, then Samuel answered, speak, for thy servant heareth. So he doesn't have the word Lord or Jehovah in there, but uh, I, I kind of like that one. You can memorize either one of these, speak, for thy servant heareth, or speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. This should be who we are. Whenever we are called by the Lord through the whisperings of the spirit, through uh, a call extended by um, our, uh, someone uh, in the bishopric or whatever, however calls come to us, uh, in whatever way the Lord speaks to us, our response should be, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Meaning, just say whatever you want me to do. I will go do it. I am yours. Whatever you have to say, whatever you have to ask me, I am yours. I will go do it. This should be who we are. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Make that part of who we are. Uh, every time the Spirit whispers to you, just think that in your head. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth, and then go do it. Find a way to do it. Um, so the, as we said in verse 10, Samuel does that. He says, speak, for thy servant heareth. And we get in verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do a thing in Israel. Uh, at which the, both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle, right? He's saying that people are going to pay attention to this. Uh, and then he tells them that Eli's house is going to come to an end. I mean, really, that means that Samuel will perform that role, that Samuel will succeed Eli as high priest rather than Eli's sons. Uh, and then it's so interesting. And Samuel lay until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel uh, feared to show Eli the vision. I don't blame him. Uh, and then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here am I. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord has said to thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. Uh, right. And then we get verse 18. And Samuel told him every wit and hid nothing from him. And he, meaning Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Now, that's that's really profound. Uh, I mean, we've said that Eli isn't worth, uh, willing to go through with the Abrahamic sacrifice. Um, and yet, let's not uh, short shrift Samuel either. He is he's pretty impressive in what he is willing uh, to do here. And in fact, I think we can learn something from it. If we were to turn to the Doctrine and Covenants section 43, verses 3 through 4, um, and we have to be careful uh, because this is modern revelation, and, and sometimes things just didn't work the same way under the law of Moses and so on. I mean, prophets, we, we've talked before about how the word prophet is used differently, and there's, there's a different structure. If we want to look for a first presidency in Quorum of the Twelve and the Old Testament, good luck finding that. It just isn't there. And so we can't always take things the way they're given to us in the Doctrine and Covenants and say, well, let's look and find that in the Old Testament. Some things certainly were consistent throughout every dispensation, and some things were not. But in this case, I think there is a principle that God teaches us when he's speaking about Joseph Smith that I think applies to what's happening with Samuel in his day. 
and Eli. So let's read this. Uh, so we're in section 43. We're going to start reading verse three, and then we'll go on to verse four. And this ye shall know assuredly, that there is none other, and it means none other than Joseph Smith, but what that really means, none other than the presiding high priest, uh, which we've already said uh, there isn't a presiding high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood in the Old Testament, but we are talking about the high priest of the Aaronic priesthood. So the functional equivalent for them, because they don't have a presiding high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood. So this is the functional equivalent when we talk about that high priest. Um, so there is none other appointed unto you to receive commandments and revelations until he be taken, if he abide in me. But verily, verily, I say unto you that none else shall be appointed unto this gift, except it be through him. So if he doesn't abide in God, then someone else will be appointed, but no one else can be appointed except for through the person who has been appointed. For if it be taken from him, he shall not have power except to appoint another in his stead. So what God is telling us is that if someone were to, uh, who is, is the presiding high priest, were to fall, they're not going to abide in God, then they won't remain in that position, but no one else has the authority to put someone in that position. That person will be inspired to put someone else in that, their position. And this is the only time I can really think of seeing this happen. It may have happened at other points, but I think we see it happen here. Note that it is Eli who first recognizes that it's God calling. I think that's significant. Eli recognizes, ah, Samuel, it's God who is going to speak to you. And he tells him, whatever he says, you need to do that. And so it's the current high priest who, as the about-to-become-high-priest, is having his first experience, tutors him in that experience, and says, this is the word of God. Uh, Eli is also the last one. Samuel learns from God, is this kind of nascent prophet and high priest. He learns from God what's going to happen, but then he tells Eli, and Eli is the one who says, it is the Lord, let him do what seemeth him good. So at the beginning and at the end, this is Eli who is recognizing that what Samuel is learning is God's will, and it should be taken as God's will. And I think that's, that's really significant. I think we, we should not forget that. Um, now, there's, oh, I, I uh, had one other thing that I wanted to share with you uh, uh, in this regard. There's some other, uh, another phrase. If we go to chapter 3, verse 19, uh, and we talked about this a little bit with my, my wife, but I want to uh, emphasize this last little bit. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And he did let none of his words, so I love this phrase, he did let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, you can read this in two different ways. Grammatically, it works either way. It works to say that Samuel didn't let any of God's words fall to the ground. So what that means is that as God is speaking to him, the words don't miss uh, Eli, and they just hit the ground, and no one listens to them and goes and does something about them. They all go into to his ears. He hears and does something about everything that God says. But you can also read this, that the he is, is God, meaning God didn't let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And I think that you can make a really a reasonable argument for that as well. In fact, Samuel is kind of traditionally known as the prophet whom God very much listened to. And it's partially because many people take this phrase that way. So, for example, um, there is a, a place in uh, Israel today called uh, uh, Navi uh, Shmuel or Nevi Samuel, uh, depending upon whether it's, it's a place that's holy for the prophet Samuel for both um, Muslims. And so they'll say Nevi Samuel or for Jews, uh, Navi Shmuel, um, 
this is a, a place that's it's called a cenotaph. It's not his actual body, but it's a place somewhere around where he was buried, uh, where they have a tomb for him that his body isn't in, but they honor him there. And this is a place where if you really want God to hear your prayers, you go and you pray there because Samuel is known as someone whom God does not fail to listen to. Now, this, as I said, this phrase is ambiguous, uh, that he did let none of his words fall to the ground. And this is, again, a phrase that's worth memorizing. Uh, I think it is often in the scriptures, you get something that's ambiguous intentionally. And in my opinion, this is one of those phrases that is ambiguous intentionally, because I think that it works together. Uh, they're, 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 one meaning is true because of the other meaning, because Samuel doesn't let any of God's words fall to the ground. God doesn't let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground because Samuel will do everything that the Lord asks of him. Then God will do everything that Samuel asks of him. That reminds me actually of, um, of Nephi in the book of Mormon, when God tells him that anything he asks, God will do it. And he says, for thou wilt not, or shalt not ask anything that is contrary to my will. Now we can ask ourselves again, it's ambiguous. Is it because this is, uh, is this a command? I'll give you anything you want, but you better not ask for anything that is contrary to my will. Or is it saying, is this a, just a statement? Uh, I'll do this because I know you won't ask anything that is contrary to my will. And I, I, it may be some of both, but I suspect the emphasis is on the latter. God will do anything that Nephi asks or anything that Samuel asks because they have become the kind of people that just do God's will. And we know that this is true of the Savior as well. Uh, their wills are so aligned, the will of the Son swallowed up in the will of the Father, that all that the Savior asks will happen. It's, it's beautiful and important stuff. Now, let's just look at one last, um, two, two last verses, the last two verses of chapter 3. And all Israel, even from Dan to Beersheba, so let's stop right there at that phrase. Um, Dan is the, the, what becomes known as Tel Dan. So the tribe of Dan is initially down in the area of Samson, but uh, which is just south of uh, Jerusalem a ways. They, they end up not being able to conquer that area and inherit that land. And so they migrate to the north and they go to the very, very northern part of the area that is, is the promised land. And they conquer there and inherit that land. So their tribal allotment actually moves and they become the northernmost kingdom. Uh, so Dan is the very northern tip, and Beersheba is the southern tip of where uh, Abraham went. So we know he was nomadic, and he had a couple of places he stayed a lot. Beersheba was the for the southern place. You remember that that's like the seven wells. He had the uh, pact with um, Abimelech there and so on. So from Dan to Beersheba becomes, it's, it's kind of like the phrase from sea to shining sea, or you could say from New York to San Francisco or something like that. That means all the way from the uh, so, for example, the United States, the largest spread is going east to west, right? But for the, the promised land in Israel, it was north to south. So if you say from Dan to Beersheba, that's a way of saying the entire uh, country. So for all Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Everyone follows him. This is this idea that Samuel becomes the judge and the leader of all Israel. Uh, now, you may have remembered, uh, and we talked about this just briefly in the podcast with my wife, but there was a, a verse that said that the word of the Lord was precious in that day because it wasn't really revealed. So they're not getting a lot of revelation coming from God. But look at verse 21. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle is. So, so 
The Lord is again speaking to them from Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So what he's saying is um, that they now have a prophet who is listening to God, and so God is speaking more frequently. He's speaking again. Um, and so from all, from Dan to Beersheba and all of the promised land, everyone follows Samuel because they know that Samuel is following God, and thus God speaks to Samuel. There's something really incredible for us in there. Both, I mean, I know that President Nelson uh, is someone that God speaks to uh, for all of the earth, from pole to pole, as it were, North Pole to South Pole, from uh, Atlantic Ocean back to the Atlantic Ocean kind of a thing. Uh, President Nelson receives the word of God and shares it for all the earth. And so I, if I want to let none of God's words fall to the ground, that means anything that I read in the scriptures, promptings that come to me at any point in time, and everything that the prophet President Nelson says to us, we need to let none of those words fall to the ground. These are some great lessons that we can learn from Samuel. And, and uh, that is very real to me uh, because the blessings that come from doing that are very real. And I promise that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.